What Makes a Killer contains graphic details of sexual assault and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is strongly advised. It's October 30th, 1975, in the Chapeltown area of Leeds in Yorkshire. 28-year-old Wilma McCann is walking home after spending the evening out. It's not a far walk from home, but it's late, so she decides to hitch a ride. Car after car passes her by as she tries to flag them down. Eventually, a lime green truck with a black roof pulls over. The driver agrees to give her a lift. To make ends meet, Wilma has been working as a prostitute. She agrees to have sex with the driver. The truck drives to a playing field just 100 yards from Wilma's home and parks. The man suggests they go into the field to have sex. Wilma gets out first and begins walking up the hill into the field. The man reaches for his toolbox on the back seat and pulls out a hammer. He gets out of the truck, takes off his coat, and drapes it over the hammer. Then he walks toward the field where Wilma is waiting. When the man reaches the field, he lays his coat on the grass for Wilma. As soon as she sits down, he strikes her on the head with the hammer, twice. He walks back to the truck where he exchanges his hammer for a knife. He returns to the woman lying in the field and proceeds to stab her repeatedly to death. In his five-year reign of terror, Peter Sutcliffe brutally murdered 13 young women across the north of England. It was a case that haunted the British public. For years, women and girls felt that simply leaving their homes at night meant taking their lives in their hands. The streets became quieter and quieter because on the horizon was this, this monster called the Yorkshire Ripper. Peter, in my opinion, was a ruthless, cold-hearted killer who actually enjoyed going out and killing. He got a thrill. He got a buzz. During the investigation, Peter Sutcliffe was interviewed nine times by police, narrowly escaping capture each time, except for the last. When Sutcliffe was finally apprehended in January 1981, It brought an end to a manhunt that had both terrified and captivated the nation. For women, it was a very frightening time, and they were stuck in this awful position of being told they shouldn't go out at night. It had an enormous social effect on the country. This is What Makes a Killer, a 12-part series that chronicles the lives and crimes of the world's most notorious serial killers. I'm your host, Jennifer Natoso. In every episode, we'll trace a killer's origins, examine their behavior, and follow their path to bloodshed. In this episode, we'll discuss Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper.
Peter Sutcliffe was born in June 1946 in Bingley, on the outskirts of Bradford, West Yorkshire. He was raised Catholic in a large working-class family. Compared to his outgoing brothers and sisters, Sutcliffe was a loner. He was very attached to his mother. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley says the Sutcliffe family dynamic may have impacted Peter's development. His mother was somebody who was very much dominated and controlled by his father. So I think he had quite a lot of sympathy for his mum and he thought the world of her as a child. But Peter was somebody who was quite shy, quite awkward. He was quite skinny and, and scrawny. And I don't think he ever lived up to his father's expectations. And I think that planted that seed of shame in Peter Sutcliffe that would come to shape the rest of his life. Sutcliffe's awkward behavior as a child manifested into a dysfunctional adulthood. This was especially demonstrated in his early career choices. Peter Sutcliffe had a variety of different jobs throughout his life. Um, He worked as a gravedigger for quite a period of time, and it was reported that he stole things from the corpses that he was burying. Now, that suggests to me that he wasn't horrified or repulsed by dead bodies, and, and that's something that would be quite influential later on. Are you one of those people who has trouble regulating your body temperature? Once we get into the fall and winter, I'm the person whose hands and feet and especially my nose are always cold. And especially after I eat dinner at night, I usually have to burrow under two blankets and a heating pad to warm up because I always like get just really, really cold after I eat dinner. I don't know why. Well, maybe I need an ember wave. What is an ember wave, you ask? EmberWave is the first bracelet that helps you feel colder or warmer at the press of a button. EmberLab's mission is to bring thermal wellness to the world. They're passionate about using temperature to help every person feel better physically and emotionally. How does EmberWave work? When you're uncomfortable, activate EmberWave to instantly cool or warm. It kind of looks like a big Apple Watch. It's got a wristband and then a large rectangular device that you wear on the inside of your wrist. Science shows that warming or cooling sensitive areas of your body, like your wrist, improves your overall comfort. Kind of like running your wrists under cold water kind of gives you a refreshing chill or putting your hands around a hot cup of coffee gives you a comforting feeling of warmth. Ember Wave cools or warms your wrist with precisely engineered thermal waves. This generates the perfect sensation that works naturally with your body and mind to help you feel five degrees more comfortable in minutes. Not feeling thermally comfortable can contribute to lost productivity, increased stress levels, and can be mentally exhausting. Ember Wave is there when you need relief most. All you do is press to activate Ember Wave for a burst of heating or cooling. The sensation pairs with your body and your mind to make you feel more comfortable in a matter of minutes. Emberwave provides comfort in unpredictable climates, relief from stress, and support for sleep. That's right, at the end of the day, Emberwave has a fall asleep mode that can help you maintain a comfortable temperature as you drift off to sleep. Listeners can get $30 off if they go to emberwave.com slash what. That's E-M. B-R-W-A-V-E dot com slash what. In February 1967, 
21-year-old Sutcliffe met Sonia Sherma. The pair began dating, and they eventually got married in August 1974. The relationship that he had with his wife, Sonia, appeared to have been a decent one, and I think he would have treated her fairly well because she served a purpose for him. Women like his mother and his wife, he saw as carers and nurturers, people who would look after him. Other women, I think he saw somewhat differently. I think Peter Sutcliffe's view of women is, is very black and white. They are either Madonnas or they are whores. So they're either these perfect domestic angels or they're these sinful creatures. These adversarial views on women were underscored when Sutcliffe discovered a family secret that dramatically altered his world. Journalist Clive Entwistle and Dr. Yardley described the account. His mother had had an affair uh, with a policeman and his father had decided to confront his wife um, at a hotel where she was meeting this particular man and took Peter uh, with him. Peter's father basically humiliated her and said, look, I know all about what's going on. And the children found out as well. So I think this kind of further cemented ideas as to what women were, what could be expected of them, um, always to be cautious and wary of them. I think there was every possibility that after seeing uh, his mother and, and seeing what happened, that that possibly preyed on his mind and affected his attitude towards women. Sutcliffe began to visit the red-light district of Yorkshire and found comfort in prostitutes. But his feelings for these women would soon lead to violence and eventually murder. It's never been established precisely when Peter started his attacks. The first recorded one, or the first known one, was sometime in 1969 when he was with a friend called Trevor Birdsall. And Peter told Trevor that he was looking for a particular prostitute who owed him money. Um, they cruised Leeds, and Peter told Trevor to suddenly stop the car. Crime writer Duncan Campbell continues the story. He jumped out of the car, suddenly disappeared, followed her down the street and, and whacked her on the back of the head and then ran, sweating, back to the car and away. The following day, the police came round and confronted Sutcliffe. He acknowledged that he'd struck the woman. He said he'd just given her a light blow with her hand. And because the woman was working as a prostitute, she didn't want any more problems with the police, and so she didn't go ahead with the complaint. Had he been arrested then, had he been listed as somebody attacking a woman uh, in, in this aggressive way, who knows whether or not it would have been much easier to find him. By October of 1975, Sutcliffe was living with his wife Sonia in Bradford and working as a long-distance truck driver. On the morning of October 30th, in the Chapeltown area of Leeds, just 12 miles away, the body of 28-year-old Wilma McCann was discovered in a local park. Wilma McCann was a Scottish woman who had come down to Yorkshire. She was working as a prostitute. She was very hard up, and it was very difficult for her because she had uh, young children, young family to support. And I think that was the only way she felt she could get enough money. It 
It was clear what the method of attack and the weapon of choice was for the murder of Wilma McCann. Eventually, it would become Sutcliffe's pattern. His modus operandi was to use a ball-pane hammer and was to strike them very hard and very fast on the back of the head so they fell unconscious. He used his hammer and hit her over the back of the head and then he stabbed her 15 times in the neck, chest and, and abdomen. But even knowing the murder weapons, the police were no closer to catching the killer. Three months later, in January 1976, another woman was murdered in Leeds. 42-year-old wife and mother, Emily Jackson, vanished after a night out at her local pub. Emily's son, Neil, was 17 years old at the time. He remembers receiving the tragic news on that fateful morning. I've come downstairs. My dad's loading one of the vans up for work, and I'm getting me boats on ready for going to work and having a pot of tea when they were knocking at the door and it opened the place and that's when I first knew I can still remember it plain as day Once again a hammer had been used in the brutal attack Emily had also been stabbed a total of 52 times with a screwdriver Like Wilma McCann Emily Jackson had been working as a prostitute to supplement her family's income Neil had no idea until her death. It was just to help family in dire states. I didn't realize till well after. This time, police were able to recover a critical piece of evidence. On Emily's right thigh was a very firm and visible footprint from a size 7 Wellington boot. For some inexplicable reason, he stamped on her thigh uh, with such force that it left an imprint of the sole of his boot on her thigh. Our police tried to trace that boot, or the manufacturers of the boot, which they did, and then try and find out people who had bought them, but it didn't come to anything. Once again, the case went cold, until one year later, when another murder with a familiar M.O. took place in Leeds. On the morning of February 5th, 1977, the body of 28-year-old Irene Richardson, another prostitute, was discovered. She had been bludgeoned with a hammer and stabbed in the neck and abdomen with a knife. West Yorkshire police realized they were dealing with a serial killer. And this was just the beginning of what would become one of the most infamous series of murders in British history. Less than three months after the death of the third victim, Irene Richardson, the killer struck again. On the night of April 23, 1977, 32-year-old prostitute Patricia Atkinson became victim number four. She was murdered in her own home in Bradford. She believed that if she invited customers into her flat, she was safe because all the killings had taken place in isolated parks or back alleys. So she thought she was safe, but she wasn't. The killer hit Patricia four times on the head with a hammer and then mutilated her body with a knife. This time, detectives found a clue to link the murders of Patricia Atkinson and Emily Jackson. 
The police found the same boot mark on the bedclothes at Patricia's house as they found on Emily Jackson's thigh. This link confirmed to authorities that the killer was expanding his hunting ground. He also seemed to have a favored target. All four murder victims had been working as prostitutes. They were very vulnerable women. It was very easy to persuade them to get into a car. It was very easy to find them. And they were used to not being uh, protected in, in any way. And so he would be able to drive along, ask them if they were up for business, and they would get into the car. And he realized then that as long as there was nobody watching what was going on, he could do what he liked. But the next victim would derail authorities off this course completely. On the morning of June 26, 1977, just over two months after the murder of Patricia Atkinson, two children in a playground made a terrifying discovery, the body of a 16-year-old girl, Jane McDonald. But Jane didn't fit the type this killer was targeting. She wasn't a prostitute. She was uh, a young girl going home, minding her own business. But suddenly, a schoolgirl was attacked, and that changed everybody's perception of the sort of man they were looking for. By this stage, if it was a woman who was vulnerable, he was happy to kill them. Any woman was vulnerable if they were found on the streets late at night. This latest kill caused a great public outcry. The tabloid press gave the killer a nickname the Yorkshire Ripper. After Jane MacDonald's murder, the press then and television actually became more interested in what was happening. What did become clear was the attitude of that time because she was described in some newspapers as his first innocent victim, as though in some ways the prostitutes had been guilty of making themselves vulnerable to him. It caused a lot of anger amongst women, amongst feminists, and amongst any commentator with a heart. She was a victim who prompted the police to work much harder than I think they had been working at the time. What this did in the public mind was actually create mass fear. There was a great deal of fear. And as the killings went on and the attacks went on, that fear increased on a monumental basis. Women were frightened of going out at night. Women questioned where their husbands were, boyfriends were, what they were doing when a particular attack had taken place and they perhaps weren't where they said they'd been. Far from being a condolence, the increased media attention in the case only intensified the ongoing suffering of the victim's loved ones. Neil, Emily Jackson's son, remembers. It was flashed everywhere. Don't matter where you went. Papers, TV, buses, blackyards, it was advertised everywhere. There was no way you could get away from it. It made it harder for me just seeing a photo of a mum of being not there to talk to. With a full-scale manhunt now taking place, West Yorkshire police were desperate to capture the Ripper before he struck again. But he seemed to always be one step ahead. His next murder would take place across the Pennine Hills.
On the morning of October 9th, 1977, 20-year-old prostitute Jean Jordan was discovered on an allotment in Manchester. Her body had been heavily mutilated, and she'd been dead for over a week. This time, detectives found a clue, a newly minted five-pound note in Jean's handbag. It led them to a 31-year-old truck driver from Bradford named Peter Sutcliffe. The police found the five-pound note. They traced it via the banks and found that it had gone through the hands of probably 300 people, one of them being Peter. Peter was interviewed, but on the night in question, he said he was at a party and his members of his family confirmed that he had been at the party. Accepting the alibi, police dismissed him. But this would not be the last time that Peter Sutcliffe would slip through the fingers of authorities. Between December 1977 and May 1978, he would kill three more women, all of them prostitutes, all of them bludgeoned to death with a hammer. I think that the longer that serial killers get away with it, the more bold, the more kind of dramatic their offending becomes and and the more prolific they become because they've been flying under the radar for so long. They may have even been interviewed by the police and subsequently not charged with anything. They do get to the point where they feel completely untouchable. On December 14th, 1977, 25-year-old Marilyn Moore was working in the red light district at Chapelton. Sutcliffe pulled over to solicit Marilyn. She got into the car and told him where to drive. Once parked, Sutcliffe suggested that she go to the back of the car. As Marilyn started to get out, Sutcliffe picked up his hammer, which was on the floor by his side. Sutcliffe took a swing at her, but slipped in the mud and lost his balance, only clipping her on the head. As she screamed, he hit her on the head once more. With the second blow, Marilyn fell to the ground. Sutcliffe noticed in the distance that people were walking along the road and became startled. He jumped into his car and drove straight home. Marilyn recovered and later reported the attack. She described her assailant in detail to the police, and a facial composite was released. By May 1978, West Yorkshire police had interviewed Sutcliffe on seven different occasions, but continually ruled him out of the investigation. By now, nine women had been murdered, and many others violently attacked, barely escaping the Ripper. Fear spread throughout the region like wildfire. The public criticized the police for their failure to protect its citizens and to capture the killer. At one point, the lead detective on the Yorkshire Ripper case, George Oldfield, received a strange message in the mail. It was an audio cassette tape that seemed to be from the killer himself. I'm Jack. I see you are still having no look catching me. I have the greatest respect for you, George. But Lord, you are no near catching me now than four years ago when I started. What really derailed the investigation, or largely derailed the investigation, was a tape from a chap in the northeast, from Wearside, who sent uh, George Oldfield a tape 
which became known as Wearside Jack's Tape, in which he said, You haven't caught me. You've been looking for four years and really taunting the police. He mocked George Oldfield and said, Your men are not doing very well. I've done another one and you still haven't caught me. And he had a Geordie accent, a Wearside accent. And as a result of that, the police discounted people like Peter Sutcliffe. A year goes by, and the Ripper is quiet. But early on the morning of April 5th, 1979, a woman discovered the body of his 10th victim, 19-year-old Josephine Whitaker in Halifax. Later that year, West Yorkshire police paid another visit to Sutcliffe's house in Garden Lane, Bradford. Officer Andrew Laptu said he will never forget the day he realized he was standing face-to-face with the Yorkshire Ripper. The reason for going to see Sutcliffe was because his vehicle had been sighted in three red light areas. In Leeds, in Bradford, and in Manchester. Talking to Sutcliffe was like pulling teeth. You'd say to him, what do you do for a living? I'm a driver. Where do you work? Oh, Clark's at Shipley. He wouldn't volunteer any information without it being asked from him. And one of uh, our ploys, tactic if you like, an icebreaker, was to say to the wife, now's your chance to get rid of your husband if you want. Now, said jokingly, but it was an icebreaker to put everybody at their ease. With the Sutcliffe's, there was no reaction whatsoever, which I found strange, because at least you'd get a smirk or a laugh. He was quite an attractive man, you know, well-groomed, but had no personality, no charisma about him whatsoever, no aura, there was nothing there. Andrew felt so uneasy about his encounter with Sutcliffe, he submitted a report to his senior officers. He suggested Sutcliffe needed to be investigated further. I had the report typed up, and I says, I've interviewed this fellow, I don't like him. I says, I've got really bad feeling about it. It's an itch that I can't scratch. Anything to do with the case was attached to the report, and I went directly to Dick Holland in the incident room. He put in a report to uh, his senior officers that Peter was a person who should be of interest, someone who should be looked at closely. And one of the key things that Mr Latchu noticed was that Peter had a gap in his two front teeth. And this, he felt, could mark up or marry up with bite marks found on two of the victims. He asked me if he was a Geordie. I says, no, it's from Bradford, it's from around these parts. I says, but it's a a dead ringer for the Marilyn Moore photo fit. And then he hit the roof. If anybody mentions effing photo fits to me, they'll be doing traffic for the rest of the service. It wasn't so bad that I had the report rejected. It was the manner of the rejection in front of about 50 people. So I could have crawled under the crack in the door after that tirade. But you've got to remember, these fellas were like gods. That's how much in high esteem we held them. But the senior detectives on the Ripper case were still stuck on the mysterious Wearside Jack tape. They were so convinced that was the actual killer that they dismissed any suspects that didn't match up with the tape. Police 
threw all their eggs into one basket and discounted a lot of others and spent many, many man-hours, days, weeks, trying to track down Wearside Jack. And that threw the whole investigation into kilter. It really did derail it. He'd had many escapes, Peter Sutcliffe, during the investigation. He was interviewed a total of nine occasions. He lied his way out on every occasion, and he was a very good liar. He always had a, quite a clever excuse as to why he had been somewhere. He had the perfect alibi because he was a long-distance lorry driver, so he had a perfect excuse to be in different places at odd times of the day or night. I think Peter Sutcliffe was rather amused by what was going on in terms of the manhunt for him. And even Peter Sutcliffe himself has said, I got to the point where I thought I must be invisible. So he got to a stage where he felt untouchable. He felt so powerful, he thought that he was never going to get caught. On September 2nd, 20-year-old Barbara Leach was found murdered in Back Ash Grove, Bradford. It was only 200 yards from where she had said goodbye to her friends the previous night. The women of West Yorkshire and the surrounding area continued to live in terror. Prostitutes were particularly in danger, since eight of the 11 victims had been working on the streets. They were all very, very frightened. They needed to keep working, but there was always this fear that the next man, the next client, could be the Yorkshire Ripper. The tenor across the UK was tense. Many were on edge, awaiting the next strike from the Ripper. We'd never had anything like it. The media coverage was overwhelming about it. So wherever you were, there was always something about the case. That a million pounds worth of publicity it was a massive, massively intensive uh, campaign, really, both from a police point of view and uh, a media point of view, and it saturated your, your whole life. At this point, the case was so high profile, the police could focus on nothing but the Ripper, and they were overwhelmed with call-in tips. The problem for the police was the days of before computers, and police in those days, would log uh, information on index cards. Because of the notoriety of the attacks and the publicity, the police were inundated with information. They had boxes and boxes and boxes full of index cards, which filled a, a, an enormous room in West Yorkshire Police Headquarters. There's been undue criticism of the police who made every move with the best intention with the information that they had. You cannot sort of anticipate what a murderer's going to do at random. All the stops were pulled out because all the police wanted from the top to the bottom was for this man to be captured so we could get back to normal everyday policing. For almost a year, there were no more attacks until August 20th, 1980. The body of 47-year-old civil servant Marguerite Walls was discovered in Leeds. She had been hit on the back of the head and, in a change to the Ripper's usual method, she had also been strangled. Now why he changed his modus operandi, nobody seems to know. 
Marguerite Walls was Sutcliffe's 12th victim. Yet the police were still no closer to catching him. At Native, they create safe, simple, effective products that people use in the bathroom every day. They create products with trusted ingredients and trusted performance. Not convinced? Check out the 9,000 five-star reviews they have from customers. Native deodorant is formulated without aluminum, parabens, and talc. It's filled with ingredients found in nature, such as coconut oil, shea butter, and tapioca starch. It's never tested on animals, and Native always provides free shipping and returns. Now, just a little coinky-dink, I happen to be a user of Native deodorant. I'm wearing some right now. And I just looked at my email to see what was the last few things I ordered from them. And it was earlier this year I ordered the charcoal deodorant, the pear and lavender, and the lilac and white tea. Because here's a little something about me. I do not want to smell like a baby butt. I cannot stand baby powder, fake smell, and nonsense. It's just right there. And that's what's great about Native Deodorant. They have so many different scents and flavors. They have seasonal scents. The scents come and go, so if you see one you like, I'm telling you right now, you should order in abundance because they get really popular and then they sell out or maybe you have to wait until next year. Right now, they do have, I believe, some pumpkin spice deodorant, which I have never tried, but, you know. Who doesn't want pumpkin spice under their arms? I mean, really. They have a like sweet almond and honey one that I am eyeing even as we speak. And it looks like that one is a sensitive skin one, which is good. I also use the cotton and lily sensitive skin one, which is especially nice after I use my lady razor in the shower. Sometimes I get a little extra sensitive. And look, right there, extra sensitive deodorant for the taking in my medicine cabinet where there are four or five different scents lined up because I'm that person. I really debated with switching over to a natural deodorant. I thought I was going to have to give up the efficacy and the protection, but that hasn't been the case. Native deodorant works just as well as all those deodorants with the cornucopia of chemicals in them. People love Native. They've got 9,000 five-star reviews. You can check them out on the Today Show, Elle Magazine, Pop Sugar, Refinery29, just to name a few. All of the ingredients are natural. It's aluminum-free, safe, and effective. And as we've already mentioned, with all the different scents they have out there, there is a little something for everyone. It's no risk to try it. They offer free returns and exchanges in the U.S., for 20% off your first purchase, visit nativedeodorant.com and use promo code WHAT during checkout. That's nativedeodorant.com, N-A-T-I-V-E, deodorant.com, and use promo code WHAT. A month later, 20-year-old student Mo Lee moved from Liverpool to Leeds to complete her degree. The stifled atmosphere was palpable for Mo having arrived in the Ripper's home county. So in 1980, I'd just uh, completed a foundation degree in art and design from Liverpool. So I ended up going to Leeds uh, to do a fine art degree. But there was a strange atmosphere there. The streets became quieter and quieter because on the horizon was this, this monster called the Yorkshire Ripper. 
there'd be another murder and it'd be closer to home. And we began to realise that as women going out alone, we were pretty vulnerable. Mo and her fellow students tried not to allow the recent attacks to affect them. There was a curfew almost on, on women going out alone. There was that solidarity amongst the women and female friends and, and the blokes as well, that they'd make sure that they would walk you home. Until one evening on October 25th, 1980. I planned to go into the town centre of Leeds to meet a group of friends from art school. And I left that pub, I think it was about quarter to ten, ten o'clock. My friends were saying, oh, we'll walk you into town and you're going to be all right. And I'm going to say, you know, I'm absolutely fine. It's not far. I got to the outskirts of the campus and there's a church and you can either take the long way round, or you can go through a shortcut street. I made a decision that it would be much easier for me to go through that shortcut and get into town so get home safely. But Mo was not alone. It was fairly dark, and as I was halfway through, I heard this voice calling to me. So I stopped, and I turned round, and I walked towards this figure, and it was a young man. I thought, maybe I do know him. I wasn't. He was so friendly, so friendly. He wasn't friendly. So I realised I didn't know this chap, and then I realised I was in danger. I just sensed this. And as soon as I started to run, really quickly, his footsteps were behind me, getting quicker and quicker and quicker, and the fear, my knees turned to jelly. And all I remember was getting this massive whack on the top of my head, and I saw the ground come up towards me, and that, that was all that I remember. But it was real fear, like nightmare, deep, deep fear. I've never been frightened before like that, ever since. Fortunately, Moe's screams had brought a group of students running, so the attacker fled the scene. The next thing she knew, Moe was waking up in a hospital. I was pretty lucky. I think my bones are pretty strong, so the blow to the top of the head has left quite a large dent and crack in my skull. I had two puncture wounds to the back of my top of my neck, just below my skull, and cuts and bruises on my knees and elbows where I'd fallen to the floor. The police couldn't be sure that the attack on Mo Lee was carried out by the Ripper, but they wouldn't have to wait long before he claimed his 13th victim. Nearly a month later in Leeds, Jacqueline Hill, a 20-year-old student, was hit over the head, stabbed repeatedly, and mutilated. Jacqueline Hill would be Peter Sutcliffe's final victim. Just after New Year, or January 2nd, 1981, Peter went to Sheffield and picked up a prostitute. On the same evening, a policeman with a lot of years of service decided to show a young rookie round Sheffield. It was a routine police stop. The two officers spotted Sutcliffe's car near Melbourne Avenue in Sheffield's red light district. They decided to approach and talk to the pair. The cops asked, what's, what's your girlfriend's name? He said, I don't know, we've only just met. And the 
policeman said, you know, I haven't just fallen off a Christmas tree. Um, so he, he already realised there was something odd going on. Peter said that he needed to urinate and the officers let him go up to a wall by the side of the building. While he was away, the young police officer did a, a PNC check on the registration of the car and found that the plates were false. So Peter was arrested and taken to Dewsbury Police Station. Once down at the station, Sutcliffe was searched. He wasn't carrying any weapons. But this time, detectives were more thorough. So one of them thought, let's go back to that place where we spotted him and let's see if he did leave anything when he popped out of the car saying he was going to have a pee. They found the hammer, the attended murder weapon, and they came back with them. And gradually after that, Peter Sutcliffe realized that the game was up and eventually he confessed. And his only condition was that he be allowed to tell his wife, Sonia, before it became known to the general public that he was indeed the Yorkshire Ripper. It had been over five years since the murder of Wilma McCann, but detectives finally had the Ripper in custody. All the years of terror for women in West Yorkshire, all the years of frustration for the police, finally had come to an end. There was one person who had suspected Sutcliffe was the Ripper for years, Officer Andrew Laptu. He vividly remembers the moment a fellow officer told him the incredible news. She came in and says, they've caught the Yorkshire Ripper. I says, what? Really? Who is it? And she says, somebody called Peter Sutcliffe. Well, it was like somebody punching me in the chest from the inside. The bottom had fallen out of my world. Sutcliffe's arrest made headlines across the country. Chief Constable Ronald Gregory gave a press conference. He is being questioned in relation to the Yorkshire Ripper murders. We are absolutely delighted with developments at this stage. When Peter was caught, the press was all over it. At the time, it was probably one of the biggest stories since the Moors murders. The capture of Peter was front page headlines and on top of the news for days, not only in Britain, but around the world. The relief that the man behind these horrible offences had finally been caught and was behind bars was immense. And that shadow that he cast over the country for, for those number of years passed. I think when he was finally apprehended, he would have felt a sense of resignation that this was over, that he wouldn't be able to commit any more murders. But I think he probably would have been a bit shocked as well because he'd been getting away with it for so long that, that I thought he'd, he'd just be able to talk his way out of it again. A wave of relief washed over the country. The announcement came as a shock to the family members of those killed. And then closure. I'd seen it on the telly when, uh, when he got caught and at first I, I couldn't believe it. When I started listening to it properly and realising then I, I got confirmation through the place. Bit of a relief to say he'd been caught. People felt a bit safer. 
Mo Lee, watching intently, remembers when she heard the news. She hadn't fully understood who had attacked her until that moment. I was at home in Liverpool and his face appeared on the TV news. It was when he was actually taken from a prison van into uh, a courts and there was really a good camera shot and I recognised his face and his eyes. I actually fell to my knees. I was alone at home. It was six o'clock news. I thought, that's the man I chatted to. Then I was really horrified because it dawned on me that he had attacked me. So that was my first real understanding that for sure it was, it was Peter Suckley. On January 5th, 1981, at Dewsbury Magistrates Court, Sutcliffe was finally placed in custody for the murder of Jacqueline Hill. He was later charged with all 13 murders, as well as seven attempted murders. But crime writer Duncan Campbell says that Sutcliffe still had a trick up his sleeve. Once he'd been charged, I think Peter Sutcliffe felt that he had a chance of not going to prison, but of claiming to be mad and therefore going to a secure hospital where life would be much easier for him. And so he emphasized the fact that he believed God had instructed him to clear the streets and that it had been the devil, a devilish urge, had had made him carry these things out. The preliminary hearing began on April 29, 1981, at the Old Bailey in London. Sutcliffe pleaded not guilty to murder but pleaded guilty to manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility, an English law where an individual with an unstable mental state can have their offense reduced. The trial judge at that particular hearing heard evidence from four psychiatrists, two for the prosecution and two for the defense. The judge stepped in and said, we need to be careful here because whilst I don't disagree with these psychiatrists, they're only going on what Peter Sutcliffe has told them. So we need to to be very careful about accepting the the word of a multiple murderer. Mr Justice Borum decided at the end of it that Peter should stand trial in front of a jury on the charges of murder and attempted murder. And that's what happened. The crowds had waited for hours, some through the night, to watch Peter Sutcliffe arrive from Brixton in the green prison van. The trial lasted 14 days, eventually evolving into a dispute over whether Peter Sutcliffe was, as the trial judge Justice Sir Borum put it, bad or mad. On May 22, 1981, the jury reached a verdict. As each of the 13 women's names was read out, the answer was the same. By a majority of 10 to 2, guilty of murder on all charges. This is the end of the largest murder inquiry in the history of the British police, and we brought it to a satisfactory conclusion. I think when you look at Peter Sutcliffe's offending behaviour, here's somebody who's very much in control of what he's doing. Yes, his crimes are quite bloody, quite gory. They're incredibly violent, but he escapes. He gets away with it. He picks up again where he left off. He goes prepared to the crime scene. So he's somebody who who knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing is wrong, and yet he's still continuing to do it. Justice Sir Borum sentenced Peter Sutcliffe to 20 life sentences and a minimum of 30 years imprisonment before being considered for parole. He was immediately sent to Parkhurst Prison on the Isle of Wight. 
Despite being declared sane at his trial, in 1984, Sutcliffe was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. He was transferred to Broadmoor Secure Hospital in Berkshire. A lot of people speculate that his paranoid schizophrenia was something that actually developed in prison. He was somebody who was vulnerable to this anyway, but because of the stress of, of the, the circumstances of being in prison, it, it triggered the, the symptoms in him. A high court judge agreed. Sutcliffe was still responsible for his actions. In 2010, the judge ruled that Sutcliffe's sentence should be increased to a whole life tariff, meaning he will never be released from prison. In 2016, Sutcliffe was moved out of Broadmoor and back into prison at Franklin in County Durham. He remains one of the most infamous killers in the UK. Britain is not a country which has a reputation for serial killers. I think that's why it grabbed the public's attention to the degree that it did. 30 years after Peter Sutcliffe's uh, killing spree, the world is very different, very, very different. You don't see people walking about in the way that they did 30, 40 years ago. Nowadays, everybody's very cautious. Everybody's worried. I think Peter Sutcliffe has become this kind of iconic figure, this kind of criminal celebrity, and I think we need to be a bit cautious about that. We're going to lose sight of the victims, the people whose lives were lost in his killing spree. It's become more about him than it has about them now. I just wish you were here. Because I, I, I had some good happy times with mum. I just wish you were here. It breaks my heart knowing my son and my grandson don't see her. In the years since his conviction, Sutcliffe has admitted to carrying out a collection of other attacks on women. This includes two before his first murder, Anna Rogolsky and Olive Smelt. But, strangely enough, he has never admitted to the attack on Mo Lee. Would it make any difference if Peter Sutcliffe confessed that he had attacked me? It just seems so, so unlikely. I've had to learn to live with the fact that that will never happen. And, as it turned out, the Wearside Jack tape was a hoax used as a vehicle to taunt authorities. It wasn't until 25 years after the tape's release that a Sunderland man would confess that he was an imposter. Sutcliffe later described the hoax tape as divine intervention, giving him more time to kill. Sutcliffe has also talked extensively about his killing rampage, but he has still yet to give a motive for his barbaric attacks. Peter, in my opinion was a ruthless, cold-hearted killer who actually enjoyed going out and killing. He got a thrill. He got a buzz. Why he did it, only he knows. He's never actually given a proper explanation. He's never given a cogent uh, reason for killing in the manner that, that he did. What Makes a Killer is an Audio Boom original series in production with Woodcut Media and hosted by me, Jennifer Natoso. This series is produced by Audio Boom's Casey Georgie, 
Rachel Jacobs, and Karen Bevan, and by Nick Mavridekis for Woodcut. Original music by Ben Kregi and Daniel Birch. Executive producers for Woodcut are Kate Beale and Janelle Patel, and for Audio Boom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. Recorded by Adam Garner at Listen Up Studios in Atlanta. A special thanks to the survivors and families of victims willing to share their stories. If you or someone you know is a victim of sexual assault, please reach out for help. You can contact the National Sexual Assault Hotline by calling 1-800-656-HOPE or 1-800-656-4673. You can also visit their website at RAIN.org. That's R-A-I-N-N dot O-R-G. If you haven't already, don't forget to follow us on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. If you have some time, please leave us a review. Thank you. On next week's episode of What Makes a Killer... Her letter's beautifully written, very eloquent, certainly on a par with somebody of a good education behind them. And we developed this relationship where I was trying to get inside her head, but at the same time, she, being the arch manipulator, was trying to get inside my head. In April 2013, police in Hereford, England, arrested a runaway fugitive and her accomplice. In a killing spree that lasted 12 days, 31-year-old Joanne Dennehy had murdered three men and stabbed two others in broad daylight, leaving them for dead. I think she's she's somebody who perhaps has always enjoyed hurting other people. It's almost like she's this crazy scientist and the world is her experiment. She looked into my eyes and she said to me, Christopher, killing you would be good for me. And it was an ice-cold stare, I can tell you. So, yes, she would have killed me in a heartbeat if she'd had a chance. <laughs>